Good morning, everyone. <clears throat> the words that I'd like to call your attention to are in John chapter 3. John chapter 3, and I'll be reading verses 30 through 36. John chapter 3, verses 30 through 36. Hear the word of God. He must increase, but I must decrease. He that comes from above is above all. He that is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He that comes from heaven is above all. And what he has seen and heard, that he testifies. And no man receives his testimony. He that has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God did not give him the spirit in measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He that believes on the Son has everlasting life. He that does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. These words uh, spoken by John the Baptist are very fitting. Uh, many would see John the Baptist as a preacher of repentance, and rightly so. Christ made it very clear, unless you repent, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. But more than anything else, John the Baptist was a man who preached Christ. He preached the preeminence of Christ more than any Old Testament prophet. And more clearly than any Old Testament prophet, he pointed to Christ himself. Last week, we saw that this entire discussion takes place because his disciples, John's disciples, in some sense, are they're shaken up a bit by the ministry of Christ. Christ is increasing all men, as they say, are coming to Christ, and they're upset that their teacher is being forgotten. He's fading, as it were, into the background. So John then begins to explain to them the preeminence of Christ. At first, he reminds them by means of a maxim that no man can receive anything unless God has given it to him. The ministry that John received himself and now Christ's own ministry as it expands and all men come to him, this has been given to him by God. And then he gives us that wonderful illustration of the bridegroom where he exalts Christ's work and says, no, the bride, the people of God are for Christ and I'm just the best man. I'm just here to usher the bride to the bridegroom. And in doing this, my joy is fulfilled. I, I'm satisfied. And now what John does is he gives us another maxim, another principle, another principle for life, really. And that maxim is in verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. In the church, in the home, in the world, and in our own hearts, this must be the governing principle. 
that Christ must increase. In the church, the substance of the preaching must be the person, work, and blessings that flow from Christ himself. In the home, our conversation, our counsel, our prayers, our praise should always revolve around the person, the work, and the blessings that come from Christ. And in the world, our ethic and our witness, or an old word that uh, the Puritans would use, our conversation, the way that we live should exemplify the preeminence of Christ above all things. He must constantly be increasing. Those that come in contact with you should want to know the Savior, not because of your moral excellence, but because of His dignity, because of His person, and because of His own testimony. We must make Christ great. Yet, how do we do this? How do we accomplish this? Well, John the Baptist teaches us how to do it by revealing to his disciples several things. And not revealing so much, but reminding. Because this was the sum and substance of his preaching. So first what he does in verse 31, he focuses on the divine person of the Son. Then in verses 32 and 34, he gives us Christ's divine testimony. And in verses 35 and 30, excuse me, 34 and 35, he focuses on the dignity of Christ. And then in light of these three things, his person, his testimony, and his dignity, he gives us the response, the appropriate response. And the reward the reward that we receive. So again, John is speaking to his disciples. And he says to them, look at verse 31. He that comes from above is above all. He that is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He that comes from heaven is above all. By way of contrast here, he teaches us the dignity of the the. The, the divinity of Christ, the divinity of his person. He uses this language of he that is from earth or he that is earthly. The connotation is not sinful here. It's not a reference to the world and its sinfulness. What John is focusing on, I believe he's speaking of, his, of himself, is of the terrestrial nature or his finiteness, the finiteness of his own person and the finiteness of his own testimony. And these two things, his person and his testimony. He's speaking to his disciples and he wants to highlight the divinity of the Son. So he focuses on his own earthliness. He says that he who is of the earth speaks of the earth. This isn't false humility on John the Baptist's part. He rightly understands who Jesus is. That's why he makes this statement. In speaking of John the Baptist, in Matthew chapter 11, verse 11, Jesus says that John the Baptist is the greatest of all men. I'll turn there briefly. Or you can just listen to me read it. In, it's in Matthew eleven eleven. In Matthew eleven eleven, Jesus says, 
Verily, I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there has not risen a greater than John the Baptist. John the Baptist, in Christ's eyes, was the greatest among men, among Old Testament prophets. Yet John has this biblical understanding of the greatness of Christ in comparison or in contrast, because that's what he's giving us here. It's a contrast between who he is and between, uh, between himself and, uh, and Christ. He magnifies his person. If you remember from last week, John's ministry was prophesied in the Old Testament. Isaiah 40, verse 3, Malachi 3, Malachi 4, all anticipate the coming of John the Baptist to prepare the way of Christ. His birth is of really of nobility. He comes from a priestly line. An angel appears to his father and tells him that his son will come, and even declares the power and virtue of John's own ministry. This is all in Luke chapter 1. Yet notwithstanding all of these things, John is still from the earth. He is still a creature as to his person. And even his testimony Listen to how he describes his testimony in John 3. It, um, excuse me, in John 1, He says this, I knew him not, but he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, Upon whom you shall see the Spirit descend and remain, on him the same is he who baptizes with the Holy Ghost. The Father, as it were, said unto him. John's testimony is a testimony that he received by revelation. He is from the earth, and his testimony is from the earth. Let me illustrate it this way. We have in this world... uh, um, men who are experts in Roman history, right? They know everything about, let's say, ancient Rome. They've studied and they've read all the books, and maybe they've even visited those those, uh, places uh, where major events in Roman history have occurred. They know all of the people. They know all of the dates by memory. Maybe they've even written books and given lectures and taught classes on Roman history. Yet one thing they're lacking, they weren't there. They can know as much as they want to know, but they weren't there. If we were able by some act to bring even a peasant that lived during that time, they would be able to communicate to us more about Roman history than the greatest men that live now because they weren't there. It's all research. And in a similar way, John the Baptist was not in heaven. Listen what he says about the divine son. He that comes from above is above all. 
and at the end of verse 31, he that comes from heaven is above all. The Christ's person, he is celestial and infinite. He comes from above. He is above all. And this was a, a constant in the preaching of John the Baptist. This wasn't something new that he had to tell his disciples. He had constantly preached this. So in chapter 1, verse 27, he says, He it is who coming after me is preferred before me, whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose, whose shoelaces I am not worthy to unloose. And in verse 30, he says, This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man which is preferred before me, because he was before me. And in verse 34, really the capstone almost of his preaching, he says, Again, the, uh, excuse me, And looking upon Jesus, as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. So this was constant in his preaching, this, this contrast, really. The, the divinity of the Son as opposed to his own humanity and finiteness. So, the divinity of the Son. And now look at what he says with regards to Christ's testimony. He says... And what he has seen and heard, that he testifies. So there's a contrast between the persons, but there is also a contrast in the way that Christ has received the message that he declares. We have to remember that pre-incarnation, this may sound redundant, but Christ had no body. He was a spirit. Which means that, as he says in Luke, a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones, doesn't have eyeballs, doesn't have ears. This reference to the pre-incarnation of Christ and his reception of the message has to do with Christ's knowledge of the eternal counsel of God. Christ did not receive by means of a message, by means of revelation. That's not how he received the message that he declares. You see, seeing and hearing here really is a way of communicating divine Trinitarian relationship or Trinitarian communication before time began. So there's a contrast between the persons, yes, but even between the testimony, between the way that these things have been given and the substance of how they have been revealed by John and by Christ. What here's an important note. John is not putting Christ against his own message or against Scripture in a negative way. 
That's not what he's doing at all. See, there's one thing if a master sends his servant to declare a message. Tell these people that this is my vineyard and I want produce. I want pay. And there's a difference if the master sends his son and says, my father desires his pay. And that is what John is highlighting here. The heavenly nature of the preaching and teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yet this does not set Christ against the scripture. It doesn't set him against the Old Testament. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus affirms the permanence of scripture. Listen to what he says in Matthew chapter 5. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus makes this statement. Verses 17 and 18. As he's, and of course, this is the, the Sermon on the Mount. He says, think not that I have come to destroy the law or the prophets. That, that is a reference to the Old Testament scriptures. That's not why I came. But to fulfill. For truly I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle shall in no way pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Christ came, his declarations, his speech, his preaching, his teaching, his person, his work, the blessings that flow from his person and work are all in fulfillment and completely consistent with the Old Testament. But see, because of his divinity and because of his divine testimony, the words that he speaks give perfect confirmation to what was revealed in the scriptures. Um, here, here's a, there's a simple way to apply this truth. Personal or group Bible studies, ministries or ministers that do not draw you in to the person, to the work, and to the blessings of Christ are not worthy of your time. If the sum and substance is just, you know, moral teaching, or if there's a, a, a distorted emphasis maybe upon um, eschatology, you know, when is the a man of sin going to appear? And that is the constant focus. And there is no Christ in the preaching and the teaching. It's not worth your time. The greatest of men, John the Baptist, the sum and substance of his preaching and teaching was Christ. Therefore, that is what, that, that's a kind of preaching and teaching we must sit under and desire. Christ must increase in our own minds, in our own hearts, and in all preaching and teaching. So he focuses on the divine person and on his testimony. And now in, in the second half of verse 32, listen to what he says. And no man has received his testimony. This, of course, is a hyperbole. Because of the nature of Christ's person, he is divine. And because of his divine testimony, 
John uses this hyperbole to really to highlight the fact that more people should believe in him. Right? Uh, John's disciples uh, come to him and they say, all men are going to him. And John would say to them, more should. You should. Stop following me. He must increase and I must decrease. Everyone should go to him. That's why John came. Right? Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. That should take your eye off of John the Baptist. The response of the disciples of John and others who began to follow Jesus in uh, John chapter 1 verse 36 when they heard John the Baptist say, that's the right response. We must follow after him. We must pursue him. So he uses this hyperbole. Yet, verse 33 still focusing upon the testimony of Christ, he that has received his testimony has set his seal that God is true. He has affixed his seal. The idea here, of course, is of a, a signet ring, where now we use our signature to sign documents to verify truth, at that time, what they would do is they would have a signet ring. Maybe it would have uh, some crest, some animal. Maybe if you were a carpenter, your tool, something like that. And they, they would take a piece of hot wax, drop it on a document, and you would press that seal into it. And what John is saying is that those who receive the testimony of Christ, they are saying that God is truthful, that God has not lied. They are confirming the faithfulness of God. The promises that God made in the Old Testament, of course. This is, a, this is a reference to the Old Testament scriptures. What John the Baptist is saying is that those who follow after Christ have confirmed that the promises that God made in the Old Testament are true. God has not lied. Conversely, if you choose not to believe in Jesus, what you're saying is God is a liar. He is not trustworthy. He's not worthy of my time. I have no confidence in his words. And John the Baptist says no. The person who believes the testimony of Christ believes God believes the testimony of God and says God is true. This is one of the greatest things that can be said about anyone, that you believe that God is faithful. You believe in the faithfulness of God, the faithfulness of God to all of his promises really highlighted in brackets, in bold, in the person of Christ. God's yes and amen is in Jesus. It's not in our own works. It's not in what we accomplish. It's not in the nation of Israel returning to Jerusalem. It's not in the rapture of the church. It's not in a seven-year tribulation. It's not in some post-millennial heralding of the church that converts the world. No, 
the yes and amen of God, the confidence that we have before God in all things, it's found in the person of his son. Because all of scripture was was anticipating, it was preaching in types and shadows and prophecies in the law, in all of it, was preaching the coming of the son. So that when Jesus comes, that is the yes and amen of God to all of Scripture. So John continues. He says in verse 34 now, in verse 34, and now focusing not only on his divinity, but on the dignity of Christ's persons. His, his, the worth and the value of Christ. And you have two fours here. Look at the first. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. And the second, for God does not give him the spirit by measure. Two fours. The first. The first really has to do with the incredulity of the Jewish people. They did not believe that Christ was the Messiah. So as a means of strengthening confidence in his words, John makes these statements, and Jesus makes the same kinds of statements. Jesus is constantly saying that his words are the Father's words. Look at John 7, 16. John 7, 16. In John chapter 7, verse 16, Jesus says this. Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not my own, but his that sent me. He wants them to have confidence in his word. Remember, throughout the Old Testament, it is declared that the people would reject the Messiah. We don't have time to go to all of those passages. But that is really what's behind this. It's that the people would not believe. They would not receive him. Therefore, in his declarations, he backs up what he's saying by saying, No, friends, these are the very words of God. Look at John chapter 8 and verse 28. John chapter 8 and verse 28. Then said Jesus unto them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you shall know that I am He, and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father has taught me, I speak these things. And in John 12, 49, John 12, 49. For I have not spoken of myself, but the Father which sent me, he gave me a commandment that I should, what I should say and what I should speak. For the Jew, and of course John's disciples are Jewish, 
For the Jew, the Old Testament was the very word of God. And what these statements are doing is that they're showing the continuity between the Old Testament and the word of Christ. There's not a division. Christ didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. And he is giving them confidence. John is giving his disciples confidence. And the Spirit is doing the same with us today that know those things that God promised in the Old Testament. They're continued in the ministry and in the work and in the person of Christ. He speaks God's own words. And we do this all the time. To cause someone, or if we're trying to convince someone, to believe what we're saying, we refer them to a trusted person or a trusted source. So for example, if there's a good veterinarian in the area and he told you to feed your dog celery, you might try to convince somebody to feed their dog celery for the dog's good by saying, hey, veterinarian such and such. To believe Christ is to believe the Bible. And to believe Christ is to believe God. These are not distinct things. They are the same because his words are God's words. And to amplify this, really, really to, to expand and to add to what John is saying. What Jesus taught is in line with all of the Old Testament. Because all of the Old Testament is about Christ. And Christ makes this clear in John 5.39 when he says, You search the scriptures because in them you think you have life, but it is they that testify of me. That's the first four. Now we have the second. So the first is the words of Christ are the very words of God. More should come to him. More people should come to Christ. All men should come to Christ. And when they come to Christ, they verify, they put their stamp on the faithfulness of God because his words are God's words. Yet he takes us a step further. The second four. Four. He has the spirit without measure he has the spirit without measure now there there are two ways that we can take this statement and two ways we can take this the first is if we consider christ as god which he is he is the god man now, remember right basics of the doctrine of the trinity we'll get into this in a few weeks um when we, as we study the confession, but just some basic Trinitarian theology. There is one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. That, that's, that's a ton of theology in just a few words. And neither person is confounded nor divided in substance. God is who he is. So there are three persons, one Godhead, co-eternal, co-equal. So we can speak of Christ having the Spirit as God. And what we would be saying, or what John the Baptist would be teaching us, is that the Father gives the Spirit to the Son as the Father has the Spirit, which is infinitely 
so that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and from the Son. Look at John 16, 17. And that point, I'm not going to focus on at all anymore. I just want to show you the reference. But you should keep coming because when I get to John 16, verse 7, I'll teach the eternal procession of the Spirit. Uh, John 16, 17. Jesus says, oh, excuse me, John 16, 7, not 17. Jesus says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, if I don't go away, the Comforter will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. What I think John the Baptist has in mind, though, what I think John the Baptist has in mind, though, is he is speaking of Christ or of the humanity of Christ and of the endowment of the Spirit that Christ has without measure. If we examine uh, the Old Testament, throughout the Old Testament revelation, you have these instances of the Spirit being poured out on either a group of people or on an individual. So in Numbers 11.25, you remember the Spirit is poured out on a portion of people and uh, Joshua gets jealous for, uh, for Moses. And he says, look, these people, they're all prophesying, right? And when we hear that, of course, we sort of interpret that in our own context. And even the best of us may think, is that like charismatic speaking in tongue? No, they're prophesying. They're declaring the word of God. That's what is being talked about there. And uh, Moses, uh, excuse me, Joshua is jealous for Moses. And he says, hey, let's, let's make them stop. And, and Moses said, would that all God's people prophesied that way? declared God's truth in that manner. And then with Elijah and Elisha, where he asks the question, and that is in, um, in 2 Kings chapter 2, what would you want, Elisha? And he says, I want a double portion of the spirit that you have. And we see it also in the prophets, in other prophets, and in the kings of the Old Testament, and even on the priests, where the Spirit comes to assist them. It's a gift that empowers them to perform their ministry or to fulfill their vocation. It's a special endowment of the Spirit. It's not the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that occurs in regeneration, but it's a special gift of the Spirit. Paul makes reference to this in Ephesians and in 1 Corinthians. In Ephesians chapter 4, in Ephesians chapter 4, he says it this way. And he uses the word grace. In Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 7. Paul writes, But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. So each person receives grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. He picks up on this same truth in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 11, where he says that the Spirit gives gifts according to his own will or desire. 
by measure, grace, or the gifts of the Spirit are given. But to Christ, the Spirit is given, in other words, grace is given beyond measure in an incompa uh, incomparable, incomparable, I think that's a word, incomparable way, in a way that cannot be compared. So he is the man of the Spirit. We see this at his birth, right? Uh, the Spirit, this is in Luke chapter 1, the Spirit is going to overshadow uh, Mary, and the thing that will be born in her is holy at his birth. And then in his resurrection, where the Spirit raises him from the dead. And it is the same Spirit that sustained Christ throughout all of his ministry, in all of his preaching, and in all of his teaching. That's why John, at the beginning of the gospel, makes this statement about Christ. He says, in John 1.16, And of his fullness, remember, the fullness of the Godhead dwells in Christ bodily. And of his fullness... Of the fullness of His Spirit, we have all received grace for grace. Grace on top of grace. Grace in abundance. Because of the dignity of His person, and because of the nature of His vocation, His calling to speak the very words of God, He was filled with the Spirit without measure, in an immeasurable way. You think of the practicality of a statement like that. If you found, uh, you know, you were, say you were hiking somewhere, and uh, this, the, this the, you know, and the state of New York didn't own all the minerals everywhere, okay? All right, let's, let's, let's say, for example, and you found a cave, and you found huge deposits of gold. And it appeared to you, this is an infinite amount of gold. I, I will never personally be able to exhaust the riches that are contained in this cave. That is what we have in a way that cannot be compared with gold in a cave in Christ is we have an infinite source of riches and blessing in His person. You see, we can come to Christ at any time, and He is never exhausted when we come to Him in prayer. He is never exhausted when we come to Him with all of our needs, when we need forgiveness, when we need His favor to be good husbands, when we need His grace to be wives that honor Him, when we need His grace as children to obey our parents, or as men and women living in a world that is increasingly hostile to Christianity, the grace of Christ is never exhausted because He has the Spirit without measure in an infinite capacity. Christ has the Spirit, He abounds with the Spirit.
now to elevate almost the person. He says this, the dignity of Christ. So first, he speaks the words of God. Second, he has the spirit without, without measure. And third, the father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. Now, of course, uh, you have places in the Bible like Psalm 2. Ask of me and I will give you the nations as an inheritance. The father speaking to his son. In Matthew chapter 28, that, that, that is anticipated at this point in the gospel. Matthew 28:18, where Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. Go therefore and preach the gospel to all nations. That's all of that is true. But here the, the all things, I think it's in verse 34. The Spirit himself. What the Father gives to Christ, which is the most important, quote-unquote, thing that we need. See, the riches and the blessings of fellowship with God, they are found in Christ, but they come to us by the Spirit. Why is it that we cry out, Abba, Father? Because the Spirit is poured into our hearts. Why is it that as God's people, we have a fellowship and a communion with each other? Well, we have unity in the Spirit. See, the richest and, the richest and greatest gift that God can give, of course, is His Son. But it is by the working of the Spirit that we are able to receive those gifts in Christ. And Christ has that Spirit, and He dispenses that Spirit freely. He gives the Spirit because He has the Spirit without measure. He says it this way in John chapter 17. And this is His high priestly prayer. In His high priestly prayer, He says it this way. John 17. And verse, I'll read verses 1 and 2. These words spoke Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify your son and your son will also glorify you. As you have given him power over all flesh. All authority, all things have been given over into his hand. You have that note in this passage. That he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. Christ has all things because he has the Spirit. And the most important thing that Christ dispenses by means of the Spirit is eternal life. And this absolutely has to do with our response and the reward that we will receive, not reward of merit, as we talked about last Sunday during Sunday school, but a reward of grace, not earned, but a free gift, is eternal life. Look at John 3 now and verse 
35. Excuse me, verse 36. The Father loves the Son, verse 35, and has given all things into His hand. He that believes on the Son or believes in the Son has eternal life. Why? Because you have believed the Word of God. Because you have come to Him who speaks the words of God and who has the Spirit beyond measure and gives grace upon grace. You have come to Him who can impart eternal life, who can give the Spirit, and the Spirit will well up in Him like a fountain that could never be exhausted. He that believes on the Son has everlasting life. You think of the confidence that a Christian has in this world. It's, it's really, it was in the last verse of which one of those songs? I think it was, uh, let, let me see here. He leadeth me. Yes, he leadeth me. It, it, it says this, And when my task on earth is done, and when by thy grace the victory's won, even death's cold wave I in, uh, excuse me, even death's cold wave I will not flee, since God through Jordan leadeth me. G even through death the believer does not shrink back has perfect confidence and no fear. Not because he's a fool. You see, you uh, fools don't have fear, right? But that's because they're stupid. The Christian does not have fear because he has Christ. That He is our confidence. He is the one who gives us eternal life. It's not based upon what I have done, but based upon faith and confidence in him. In his divinity, faith and confidence in his testimony, faith and confidence in the dignity of his person. Therefore, I will receive everything Christ has pledged to me. I can't lose any of it. And I know it's mine with confidence, not because of anything in me, but because of his own person. And you see, in this way, John the Baptist pushes all of his own disciples onto Christ. He says, go to him. Go to Christ. Because if you choose not to, he that believeth not the Son shall not see life. You have life now, but this isn't true life. You see, let's say we get 125 years here. That's just a blip in eternity. And it's 125 years with much pain and sorrow, even in the life of the most godliest person. And usually in the life of the godliest people, it's the greatest suffering and the greatest difficulty that they suffer. But you shall not see life, and what he means is eternal life. The wrath of God abides on you. In a text that I cite often, Paul, right? He says that we were once children of wrath. That's what he means. The wrath of God hangs over you every day. 
kind of like Eeyore. You know who Eeyore is from Winnie the Pooh? He's always got that rain cloud, right? But instead of that rain cloud, it's the wrath of God hanging over you when you wake up, as you walk through life, when you go to sleep. For every second, every minute, and every hour, that wrath hangs over you. And when you die, it bursts open and you fall directly into hell. And there you will be for eternity. But consider what Christ offers you. Christ doesn't, God is so gracious that he gives you the greatest gift. He gives you his son. And his son is able by the power of his spirit to grant to every and anyone who believes in him eternal life. The fool, it is a, a, a foolish person who with a closed tight grip will not let go of the things of this world and grab onto Christ. He is the greatest gift that God has offered to man and he offers that gift, it's a gift freely, freely of grace. I'd call all of you today that do not believe in Christ to believe in him, trust in his person, trust in his work. And for those of you that believe in him, rejoice in his person. 